0: Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Today
1: we have uh, Ched Myers with us who many would say has written one of the most definitive works on the gospel of Mark. And I want to tell you how we sort of came up to this moment here. Two or three years ago, a buddy of mine says, you got to get this book. It's really good. It's called Binding the Strong Man by some guy named Chad Myers. Never heard of him. Uh, check it out. You will love it. I got into it, and it blew me away, and it inspired me to put this series together for us that we're in, in the, in the gospel of Mark. And then I did some snooping on the internet, because that's what people do these days. And I recognized that Chad was adjunct faculty at the seminary of the U of S. And then someone here told me that his wife was from Saskatchewan. And I thought, oh, this is too good. So then I went and found your email address and I sent him an email. I said, hey, Ched, my name's Joe and I'm a pastor. We're walking through the book of Mark. Any chance you want to come hang out with us for a Sunday and maybe unpack a package, a passage. And to my delight, he said, Yes. So I am so thankful that he's here. Can we give it up for Ched this morning? Ched, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. And I, and I want to say one more thing before I give chance, uh, Ched a chance to intro- introduce himself a little bit. Is that in a past life, uh, one of the things that I did was sort of handle Christian speakers, writers, Christian celebrity types, and not all of them were very nice, but Ched's been amazing, super kind, and super thoughtful. And uh, again, the book has been impactful, and uh, just the way we've interacted has been amazing as well. So thanks for being here, and then uh, why don't you introduce yourself a bit? Tell us, who are you? What are you all
0: about? And what are you doing with your life?
1: In like a minute.
0: Well, thanks Joe and Allison and the whole crew here at Lakeview for the opportunity to... um Come be with you. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my peeps over there. My wife Elaine is here. She's sitting next to her sister Diane, with whom we're staying. And there's some other peeps here. You all just want to give a hoot, so I know that you're here. They're that's not. Right a, that's a Mennonite hoot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, So grateful for this family that, that we have up here. Elaine and I run a, a small uh, nonprofit uh, down in Southern California called Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Uh, our um, our task is to try to help folks connect the dots between seminary, sanctuary, and streets. That is to, um, uh, through uh, education, advocacy, and organizing, to uh, invite and challenge our churches to um, be on the meaningful forefront of efforts to heal and challenge uh the society we live in um, as opposed to just kind of reading about stuff in the newspaper like everybody else um, so to help uh, our work is, is is really about that and we get to come up here to Saskatoon where Elaine was uh, raised just over here in Nutana Park um, once or twice a year and uh, great to, to meet all of you all and uh, hope we can get to know you better. Cool. You Want to give your book a, a quick plug there? <laughs> You just want me to give it to you again like I already did in the yeah, early service. it was kind of cool. Let's relive that moment. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> well, Joe read the big book because um, he's like that, but most people prefer the little book. This is the little book. And then, um, I, you know, I made this big tearful um, uh, gift, and then he said, yeah, we've been selling copies of that in the bookstore already. So, uh, But anyway, this, this is a... Uh, um, an attempt to, to have a more popular readable version of um, mark 's uh, story of discipleship it 's called say to this mountain it 's cool because it 's got my late mother 's art on the cover mm-hmm. um, and it is a study guide um, to mark i 'm just so deeply grateful that you as a church uh, are spending however many months that you 're uh, doing to uh, look at this earliest of our gospels uh, that offers an alternative storyline to the story of the world um, and uh, gives us, in that sense, a, a bit better compass Uh, in this conflicted uh, world. So uh, there you go again. You can keep it this time. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: And we started with 10 of these in the bookstore this morning. There's only two left. So if you want to continue on this conversation, go grab one of the last copies. And here's how we're going to go this morning. Uh, We're going to read three different passages in Mark chapter 12. And after I read a passage, I'm going to ask uh, Chad to commentate on it. And then I'll ask a question about along the lines of, so then what does this mean uh, for us? Does that sound good for you? You want to do this again?
0: Sure. Let's see if we can get it Right this time. Yeah, we'll
1: see that. And can you remind everyone, because last night you were at a party. What time did you get to bed last night?
0: Yeah, uh, I think we rolled in about 3.30 uh, a.m. Yeah. and got to bed. These Mennonites, they sing, they dance. These are, <laughs> these are the singing, dancing Mennonites. And uh, this was Elaine's sister's 60th birthday. It was a big shindig up in uh, Carlton. Uh, so we were raging, and, and these guys are dancing. It's very hard to get them off the dance floor, like, hey, some of us have to be in church tomorrow morning. No, just one more song. And, and then we kept singing in the car on the way back so that our driver wouldn't fall asleep. It was great, so here we are. All right, are you ready for this, man? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, starts like this.
1: Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. And he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed and he had one left to send a son whom he loved he sent him last of all saying they will respect my son but the tenants said to one another this is the heir come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard what then will the power of the vineyard or the owner of the vineyard do uh, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others haven't you read this passage of scripture The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So help us out here, Chad, right off the back. What is the cultural context that exists as a backdrop to this parable, to this story? Because what would it have meant to Mark's original hearers?
0: So being the agricultural uh, province that you are, you'll recognize immediately that this is a story about land and those who work the land and those who own the land and conflicts between them. Sound familiar at all? Mm-hmm. Uh, So let's just start for a quick minute in the real world we inhabit. Uh, Elaine studied at the U of S, uh, at the Saskatoon Theological Union, and one of her teachers was Cam Harder, who did pastoral ministry among uh, family farmers in Saskatchewan. And uh, he was tracking the crisis of small family farmers who were losing their farms to the uh, conglomeration of land and uh, forces of globalization, and so many of these farmers were committing suicide because they were watching their way of life um, atrophy. Uh, <clears throat> this is this is the real world of land tenure. And uh, Elaine's brother Gord, who's sitting over here, works here in the province on issues of food justice. And how do you, um, in in a in a province that generates such great abundance and surplus and yet has real issues of food justice and food availability, um, quality and quantity of food available to who and how, Uh, these these are issues that are still before us. So the question is whether the gospel helps us connect more deeply with these kinds of issues or whether we go to church to insulate ourselves from those sorts of things. Now, we are in the second half of Mark's narrative of the Jerusalem um, series of conflicts. Jesus strides into Jerusalem. We all celebrated that, waving a little something maybe, uh, on Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus spends some days in basically a series of conflicts with every single stratum of authority and power in Jerusalem society, Jerusalem being the capital city of uh, Jesus' people at that time in the first century. And uh, so we're now in the second half of that narrative, and uh, <clears throat> it, Jesus begins with this parable. Now, parables, uh, the, the theme of this series that uh, you all are walking through is, let's get political. And you can't get more political than parables— Uh, when it comes to um, the Bible. Parables are ways in which people, prophets usually, speak truth to power. Uh, The most famous parable in the Old Testament, I think you'll remember, is the story of Nathan and David. Uh, David being the king, Nathan being the prophet, David having uh, gone a little wonky and um, uh, slept with somebody else's wife and then killed the dude whose wife it was. Um, How do you approach the king uh, to speak truth to that king uh, we have that problem south of the border right now uh, and, uh, and, and and how do you do this uh, without getting yourself killed and, and Nathan draws on this deep reservoir of uh, storytelling you tell a story that's real enough that uh, the hearer will recognize the scenario in this case David is the king who is also the supreme court judge he's uh, Nathan is bringing a piece of case law to him. The, the, you remember the story. It's about this poor guy and his little lamby lamb um, and a, another rich guy down the road who took his lamby lamb. Um, it's, a, it's a story of uh, injustice and social inequity. And David gets all righteously indignant when he hears this story and he says, okay, we got to do something about this. Um, that guy who violated the poor man, he's wrong. And Nathan famously says to David... Uh, You are the man. You are that man. You are that guy doing those things. So that's the power of parables. Um, Jesus here is actually um, not only drawing on the parabolic tradition of speaking truth to power, but he's actually re-narrating a um, famous parable of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah more than anybody else in his teaching. Um, Isaiah is his guy. And he takes Isaiah's parable of the vineyard in chapter 5. Now, Isaiah's parable of the vineyard, and we Christians, you know, we don't spend too much time in the left side of the Bible. We're not too literate on that part. And it's uh, I commend to you going back and reading Isaiah's parable because you'll see the ways in which Jesus is clearly um, <clears throat> uh, invoking it but also tweaking it. Uh, in that case... Uh, Uh, Isaiah is lamenting. It's a love song. He's lamenting for the way in which a farmer has cleared rocky soil, um, uh, enclosed the vineyard, planted these vines, done everything to get a yield. Um, And this is a, a love song for that work. This is a people who have a real symbiotic relationship with the land that they live on. This is an agrarian people, not unlike yourselves in this province. So it's a beautiful story, but it's also um, a love song that turns into a lament, um, because in Isaiah's parable, uh, at one point, um, he changes the tone, and he says, uh, you know, I looked for this vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. Uh, and then the the story, the twist in the parable is that it is actually uh God, the creator, who is the speaker of the love song, who is looking for fruitful yield from a people, uh, and God looked for justice and saw only bloodshed, looked for equity and heard only people crying out in pain. So we sang a song this morning about, uh, God, we need your righteousness. Righteousness and justice are the same word in the Hebrew Bible and indeed we need justice here in this province here in my country uh, the question is are we going to be that people that um, embodies god's justice or are we going to be on the sidelines while god hears the cry of the poor while god hears the screams literally in the hebrew the screams of those yearning for um, for fairness and justice so that's isaiah's parable um, he goes on to indict um, the very class of exploiters that um, undermined the viability of small farmers in ancient Palestine, namely those who joined house to house and field to field. That is those who consolidated more and more wealth in fewer and fewer hands that effectively disenfranchised small uh, producers. Uh, Well this was a big issue in the sixth century uh, it was a big issue in 6th century before Christ. It was a big issue in Jesus' time. So he's still telling this story because it's still an issue. And lo and behold, it's still an issue here in 21st century Saskatchewan. Uh, Jesus tells the parable, uh, but then he tweaks it. He introduces um, these characters. Not only now do we have an absentee landlord in the story, but we also have tenant farmers to whom the land is rented out. You see that in the story. Uh, Well, we know that, we know how that works, and we also know that tenant farmers oftentimes have kind of a bum deal, and uh, so they get restless, and they start revolting, and here comes the absentee landlord's agents to extract the profit uh, while, while other people are doing the sweat equity and putting in the labor, and they get restless, and things get uh, conflicted, and <clears throat> people start killing each other, and so Jesus is spinning this story. Who's he spinning it to? He's talking to the the leaders, the authorities, the Upper managerial class of his own time. In other words, he's talking to landowners, many of whom were absentee landowners who actually had tenants and knew about rebellious tenants and knew precisely what you would do if the tenants rose up. You'd come down and crush them. But the twist in Jesus' parable, if Nathan says to David, You are the man, Jesus is saying to this managerial class, You see, How does it feel to be on the other side of this equation? Because the book of Leviticus tells us that God is the true landowner and you all are but tenants. And so he's putting, do you see what he's doing? He's putting these, the landowning class in the position of being rebellious tenants. And they know the end of that story because they've crushed tenant rebellions before. Uh, So, it's an unhappy flip of the script for these folk, and it's trying to awaken them to the contradictions of their own society. Now, there is also a level of allegory to this story because of the, the notion of the cornerstone that the builders rejected and the son who comes trying to set things right and is killed. But see, that's part of why the son gets killed, because the managerial class that thinks it owns creation rather than being a good steward of creation and a good steward of tenant labor uh, end up being an exploitive class that will um, be in conflict and the whole thing goes south. So um, this is a story that is typically used in, uh, read in our churches merely as a theological allegory about Christ dying. But when we miss The actual real-world context, social context, we've actually missed how it is and why it was that Jesus of Nazareth was executed as a prophet. He was a prophet because he was trying to speak truth to power, and the people in charge didn't like that. Uh, So we often read parables as um, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Ever heard that phrase in Sunday school? (laughs) Uh, That's exactly bass-ackward. Parables actually are earthy stories with heavy meanings. And this is one that has a heavy meaning, and it clearly ruffles the feathers of the landlord class because they realize Jesus is organizing um, for justice in a way that is going to threaten their interests. And that's why immediately after this, they start plotting plotting to whack him.
1: Okay. So then taking that, this is a story about... Power and justice and equality and stewardship. You know, practically, why does that matter for us now? And what do we do with this story?
0: You know, uh, if we we spiritualize or allegorize the stories that Jesus tells, um, in order to essentially render Jesus innocent of ever having rocked the boat, Right, We have this meek, mild Jesus just tries to get everybody together, hold hands, saying, we are the world. Well, it doesn't actually answer the question, so why'd they whack him? Uh, and, and so there's a disconnect between the Jesus who gets himself in trouble uh, and the meek and mild Jesus that we like to talk about in our insular churches. Uh, and so we know that Jesus did, in fact, get whacked, but we can't figure out why, and so we end up um, inserting a sort of a, a theological rationale, well, Jesus died because, well, God wanted him dead, so there could be this big cosmic transaction, when in fact we're kind of missing what the story plainly says, that Jesus is telling st- uh, parables, he's speaking truth to power, he's ruffling powerful feathers, um, <clears throat> uh, people don't like him, and uh, that's why they kill him. And and when we miss that, then we end up with... Um, a theological drama of which we are spectators. This is how we get saved. Um, uh, Essentially, God whacked Jesus to save us from our sins. And we miss the whole part where actually God um, animated Jesus to be the ultimate prophet speaking truth to powerful systems. And Jesus walked the faithful way of all prophets. uh, And God rose up that way to vindicate that way, to pass that way on to us. And so are we going to be a church of spectators of issues of justice and not really know where we stand or be engaged, or are we going to be followers of the Jesus who um, strode right into the mix, uh, the, the fraught mix of um, injustice and disparity and uh, tried to bear witness to uh, the, the justice of, of his God? And, and so that's the difference between a, uh, a church that, uh, that is about uh, religious consolation only and a church that is actually about uh, liberation in all spe- aspects of life to which we are called to be disciples. So it has a lot of consequences how we read these stories, I think.
1: That's good. It's amazing, actually, thoughtful. And now As we move to this next passage, you'll see it's going from broad to even a bit more specific here. We're going to get into this next one, and it's going to get a bit touchy, right? Yeah, we could stop now. We could. It would be safer that way, but we should probably get going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was way funnier in the first service, but we'll see what happens. Here we go. Uh, Later, uh, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You haven't been swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. "'So is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? "'Should we pay or shouldn't we?' "'But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. "'Why are you trying to trap me?' he asked. "'Bring me a denarius and let me look at it.' "'They brought the coin and he asked them, "'Whose image is this and whose inscription?' "'Caesar's,' they replied. "'And then Jesus said to them, "'Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's "'and to God what is God's.' "'And they were amazed.' At him, so now let's take us a step further here, Chad. Historically, what is going on here that helps inform this story and this situation, and what is Jesus actually getting at?
0: Well, can can you say entrapment? Right, it's pretty clear in the setup that you've got the very same authorities who Jesus has been uh, uh, struggling with are now on the offensive. They are now going after him, and the best way to put him on the spot is to try to put him into a uh, politically impossible position. Why was it politically impossible? Well, Jesus is living during... Political times. Remember, the gospel doesn't take place in Disneyland. It takes place in first century Roman occupied Palestine. So his people lived in a land that was militarily occupied and controlled by the distant Roman Empire. Not only that, but the, their local economy had been completely structurally adjusted so that formerly subsistence farming and fishing um, was being turned into. Um, uh, growing food for export for the benefit of the Roman economy abroad, so not unlike our own present day, where small third-world countries are forced to grow coffee and bananas for export rather than uh, enough food to feed their own citizens. Uh, This is a a long-standing template of empire. Uh, So uh, this this is the real situation of the real Jesus in the real world, and uh, as happens, right, tenants under unjust circumstances, get rebellious, and that's exactly what had happened um, in this period of uh, Palestinian history, is um, there was a whole Jewish nationalist movement trying to kick out the Romans that was going on for the entire 75 years from the beginning of Jesus' life to the writing of the Gospels, Uh, culminated in a huge war in which the rebels were finally crushed by Rome. Uh, So this this is the situation. So whether you cooperate and collaborate with the roman occupiers or whether you join the resistance was well kind of a litmus test of where you stood on the thing now the the authorities jesus is talking with are essentially collaborators because they serve at the pleasure of the roman overlords um so they figure okay we're going to out this guy if he uh if he says uh like most good protestant christians oh, yeah, go ahead and pay taxes to to Caesar because we're all supposed to obey the state. Um, Well, then he'll disqualify himself as being a prophet. On the other hand, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, we'll have cause to arrest him, which we know they're already looking for. So it's a bit of a pickle they put him in. Uh, So Jesus, being a little bit of a theater geek, he says, oh, yeah, great question. Uh, Anybody got one of them coins? Oh, suddenly he turned the tables on them. Why? Because they sheepishly reach into their tunics and pull out this tuni—I mean this um, this um, this coin—and and, and he says, "Huh? Look at that. You have one, huh?" Jesus didn't have one. Uh, whose whose picture uh, whose image is on there? And they're all sheepish, staring at the ground, shuffling their feet. Well, I guess that's Caesar. And written in an inscription in Latin is Caesar, son of God, Savior oh yeah, I didn't make that up. You see, when the New Testament adopts that language for Jesus, that's polemical language. That's taking language that the, that Caesar attributed to himself and putting it on a peasant who was crucified by that very same Caesar. You see, this, uh, this is not Disneyland stuff. So anyway, so they're stuck with the coin and the image, and every Jew knows that that's idolatry to have an image of some, much less call them the son of God. So, uh, Kind of case settled. Jesus says, well, you're handling the money. Uh, I guess that tells me what side you're on. And what he does now is he puts the question back on them. He says, so what do you think? Uh, I guess you just go ahead and give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's not a neat doctrine or soundbite for obey the authorities, whatever they tell you to do. That's a question requiring profound discernment. What is it that belongs to Caesar? What is it that belongs to God? Now, for most Jews, right, Jews have a consciousness that the earth is the Lord's and everything they're in that doesn't leave a lot left over for Caesar. At the same time, in Caesar's world, well, Caesar pretty much wants everything too. So we're right in the middle of the conflict, and Jesus lets the question lie there, and they're amazed, meaning they're busted. Now they have to answer the very question they were trying to get him to answer. Now this is part of the genius of Jesus' pedagogy. If he's not spinning parables uh, to uh, cook their noodle, uh, he's asking questions, questions that are um, forcing them to sort of reveal their their own loyalties. Um, He he lays bare the inner conflicts of both disciples and opponents. Um, Sometimes they're sharply rhetorical like, Hey, what do you think? Can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, Sometimes they're um, uh, wrapped in a metaphor. Um, Should wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Uh, Have you uh, never read this scripture, he asks, people who are highly overeducated? Even when he's in legal jeopardy, uh, cornered in a public showdown, as is here, he will uh, act not as a defendant, but a prosecutor. Remember back in chapter 3 some months ago, uh, there was this big confrontation in the synagogue. You you looked at that story, and he was going to heal the man with a hand, and everybody was looking to pounce on him, and he just stops, and he looks out, and he says, So what do you think? What is the purpose of the Sabbath? Is it to heal life or to do evil? And, And so Jesus is the great interrogator of the status quo. He and he's so genius at engaging people that he refuses to be painted into a corner by culture wars or simple um, <clears throat> sound bites. He wants to ask the deeper question, both personally and politically. In our churches, we tend to be better at the former than the latter. But Jesus wants the whole gospel for the whole church, for the whole world, uh, and so in this way, he, um, he pushes the question back on them, and the crisis deepens, uh, and it uh, just keeps deepening, getting worse until we get to the end of the chapter.
1: So then this is not a story about taxes. This is a story about discernment. And it's very easy for us as your northern neighbors to point fingers and say, oh, ha, look how the church is getting into bed with the empire below. My goodness, how terrible. But really, what is Jesus saying about who and what the church aligns herself with?
0: That's exactly right. It's a story about discernment. And our churches um, are positioned to be, but often... Um, decline the opportunity to be communities of critical discernment as to where our loyalties lie in a conflicted society, right? Today we prayed about a shooting in a synagogue in California and shootings in churches in Sri Lanka. And we could talk about a month ago where the 21-year-old son of a local county sheriff in Louisiana Uh, went and burned three black churches as part of the long history of uh, white supremacy and racism. This is the world we live in, and yet we churches, we scratch our head. We're just not sure. We're not clear. We're a little timid. We'd prefer to be insular. And uh, I think Jesus wants to Push these questions on us. Press these questions on us to test our own loyalties. Jesus wants us to stand somewhere, Joe, mm-hmm. uh, to be uh, walking alongside people who are feeling the heat of oppression, and not just try to jump in bed with uh, those who are privileged. Yeah, we've we've got our share of problems south of the border, but I think uh, there it's every bit as much an issue here. Our our churches. Um, tend to be good venues for consolation but we're a little more ambivalent when it comes to the necessary second step of liberation uh, of the self and of the society which Jesus is clearly engaged in so again as followers of this controversial figure uh, are we we going to figure out what would Jesus do um, in our context now we can't discern what Jesus would do if we don't know what Jesus actually did in his context, which brings us back to the central discipline of uh, biblical study to come, go back to these stories and learn from the one that we say we're following. So with that
1: exact thought, we come to the final passage in Mark that we're looking at this morning, and I have to make a confession. Uh, I didn't want to touch this one with you on stage, and we went back and forth over email. I avoided it, and uh, Chad kindly said, well, we should probably grab the last part of this chapter. It's going to tie everything together. Cool? You You want to do it still?
0: Or again, we could just stop now.
1: We should probably get going. That's where you're supposed to laugh. Ha, ha, ha. And now we move on to the last part.
0: Second time that (laughs) joke didn't work.
1: Yeah, second time. Here we go. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, in this final section of the chapter, it is loaded, it is often misunderstood, so can you help
0: us understand what Jesus was getting at? So here, here's the theme of this uh, series that you're having through these months of uh, endless winter here in Saskatoon. Uh, <laughs> Let's get political. And what we're trying to do is approach the scriptures in a way not that politicize the text, but that restores the text to the real world, which includes a social, political, and economic landscape, in order for us to figure out what would Jesus do. Now, we've seen how uh, the church often turns... Uh, a story about land tenure and worker justice into a theological allegory in order to avoid the earthy heaviness. We've seen how uh, a conflict um, over uh, a coin, um, which is meant to uh, interrogate our loyalties, we turn into a simple sort of doctrine of obedience. Uh, So we're We've gotten pretty good at domesticating these stories and um, turning them into much more palatable sound bites. Uh, Nowhere more than this final uh, culminating conflict story of the widow's mite, which has typically been preached as uh, a commendation of the economic piety of a poor lowly church lady who gives up her last couple of bucks to the church out of the love of her heart. Uh, all very nice and works very well for Stewardship Sunday, which text is often appealed to. Unfortunately, this is not a commendation of this widow. This is Jesus' condemnation of a system that forces a poor woman to become destitute. Uh, so think of this. Think of Jesus at the presidential prayer breakfast. We have them. I don't know if you have them. Uh, But, you know, presidential prayer breakfast, everybody's strutting around, talking about God and uh, uh, making uh, alliances with the powerful, uh, making a big public show of religion. That's what he's talking about in the first part of this section. Uh, It's the the scribes who like the places of power. Um, And then Jesus goes from the prayer breakfast over to the treasury, uh, and he makes his final object lesson. Of a poor widow. Now, one of the ways that rich scribes got rich is they became trustees of widows' estates and they would scrape off lots of profiteering from the widows' estates because women couldn't manage their own affairs in, in, in that society according to the law. So, so, this is one of the ways that the le- lawyer class, I don't know if Thomas is here or not, but uh, you know, legal class oftentimes exploited vulnerable folk. Um, And that's one of the ways they become rich. So Jesus moves from uh, the uh, privileged class to the exploited class. He says, now looky here. Here is a woman. She's giving her last two pennies to the temple treasury. Not because she wants to, but because she has to, right? This uh, This is an obligatory contribution. And she has effectively been made destitute. She has given all she had. Now, becoming destitute is not an ideal, not in God's dream of justice, not in any society's vision of economic democracy. So, Jesus is not praising this woman. He's condemning both the strata of wealth that exploit vulnerable people and the people who are marginalized to the point of dehumanization because of those systems. In other words, Jesus is using a personal example to try to illustrate a political system that is broken. Uh, In so doing, he's inviting us to imagine the world differently. How would this look according to the dream of God, who keeps telling us over and over and over in the Hebrew Bible, make sure that widows and orphans are taken care of and not becoming more vulnerable than they already are. Jesus carries the dream of God's justice right to the point of ultimate conflict, but he's so frustrated at this point, um, even, I would say, enraged, that he's at, right on the heels of this uh, that you can look at in your in your text. He strides out of the temple, takes a seat on the Mount of Olives, looks at the temple and says to his disciples, you see, this system is so broken that we've got to undo it in order to make it right. And this is where his famous prediction of the destruction of the temple takes place. So Jesus means business. He's not just here to make us feel better about um, living in a sick society. He's actually here because he wants to heal all of us, including our social systems. And that's going to take some telling of the truth that turns out to not be very welcome then or now. So, wow. We've pretty much screwed up this whole text forever. Thanks a lot. Huh?
1: Thanks a yeah. lot for that. So let me ask you one last question on that then. So what do we do with that as individuals and as a local church?
0: Well, um, we believe that uh, in a in a society where it's really hard to get a purchase on um, on social imagination, uh, we kind of give up. We we let uh, the powers that be uh, determine the horizons of what's possible and what's imperative. Um, we in the church actually supposed to have a different social imagination that is fundamentally informed by our sacred scripture and God's great dream of justice, especially as incarnated in the life and witness of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the script that we are supposed to be following. Uh, and when we, uh, when we forget that, uh, when we uh, sentimentalize that, when we depoliticize that, we've lost our most powerful tool, both for the building of our own consciousness uh, and conviction, and also for... The empowering of a church that flows out of the sanctuary onto the streets with good news for especially poor people. Uh, so it's um, the, the reason I'm I'm so uh, delighted that that you called and and that you're as a church involved in this reading of this great uh, story of Jesus is that I believe these texts can animate us, uh, our hands and our Uh, feet and our hearts and our minds to um, stand with the people Jesus stood with, advocate for the folks Jesus advocated for, um, and maybe even um, try to speak a little truth to some of the folks that Jesus did uh, as our discipleship. So I'm so delighted that um, young members of this church are going to take a week and view the world of saskatchewan through the eyes of beardies reserve because what they will learn is that things look really different from that vantage point uh... and i'm thrilled that you gave four weeks to looking at truth and reconciliation where canada has really been so remarkable and, and had enough public courage to look at the legacy of residential schools and try to figure out what healing will mean and that uh, truth and reconciliation commission came out with uh... Uh, calls to action of which seven or eight are specifically directed at churches. So now the question is on us. What will we do with this amazing um, appeal of conscience by your First Nations uh, people? Uh, So it's my hope that uh, by recovering the bite of these texts, we will be both inspired and empowered uh, to... Enter into the fray, knowing that Jesus goes before us uh, in in leading us into uh, God's dream of justice. So, awesome. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Last question. What are you doing next Sunday? You want to come hang out and talk Mark 13? No.
0: Well, it's a great privilege to uh, have been with y'all a little bit and uh, thanks to uh, the fam for for coming out and uh, I hope we can all uh, become better friends in the future and and really want to commend you as a church. I know you're trying to move in this direction and uh, let's all be pushed and pulled along by Jesus.
1: Yeah. Well, this has been illuminating, encouraging, and challenging. Can we thank Chad so much for investing us this morning?
0: Glory. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.